Philosophy is a subject many engage in casually during parties, pillow chat, or even podcasts. But philosophy as a discipline is a field reserved for those serious or fortunate enough to have the time to dedicate to it, usually concerning the more fundamental questions of existence and society. In the most basic sense, philosophy is leading an examined life. In the case of Plato, questions of good governance for the good of the people, if not by the people, make him one of the more controversial figures in the modern era. Yet his legacy and the critical questions of how best to rule one society have yet to be convincingly countered by his critics. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time for What about someone who believes in beautiful things but doesn't believe in the beautiful itself and isn't able to follow anyone who could lead him to the knowledge of it? Don't you think he is living in a dream rather than a weakened state? Isn't this dreaming, whether asleep or awake? To think that a likeness is not a likeness, but rather the thing itself that it is like. That is a small piece of a very long and ancient tome. Um, not necessarily the myth of the 20th century tonight. Myth of uh, the ancient world, perhaps. The world of... Uh, gods and kings and and dead heroes and old wars. Um, of course, that is a quote from The Republic by Plato, which is the subject of our show tonight. A nice reprieve from uh, the, uh, the boring and uh, in, insane events often of, uh, of today and uh, certainly the 20th century. So tonight I'm joined by... Uh, Nick Mason and Adam Smith to talk about uh, this book. I am uh, Nicolakoulos and uh, Adam will be Adamicus. Sounds good. Hans uh, Honicles. <laughs> I don't know if you like that one. <laughs> no, that's terrible. Honicles. Oh no. <laughs> Honoclitis. Uh-huh. Anac- yeah, Anaclitis. There you go. It's close to Heraclitus. I, it's it's close, almost, almost. Um, so, I think uh, before we get started, we we do have an announcement to make. Unfortunately, Hank can't join us today, uh, but Hank is still around. However, we are unfortunately going to have to go to, for the time being at least, probably two releases of the program a month just due to scheduling conflicts and uh, things going on in people's lives. 
but we do have content lined up and we hope it will be good content. We plan also to maybe have some more guests on the program, fix it up a little bit, but I don't know. Uh, you could think we're entering another season of the program. I don't know how many seasons we're on at this point, but this is, uh, hopefully it will not be a clip show. We are on our fifth, well, actually, technically going into our sixth season. We've been doing this for quite some time. So I think we've all earned a break. And uh, everybody who has stuck with us, we all appreciate it. Um, we just, uh, you know, we, we, we recognize politics is very interesting, but unless you've got a billion dollars, you're not really going to be part of the actual conversation. So we're just sort of on the sidelines here taking stock and really what this is all about. And uh, some of that is just recognizing that we need to live our lives. And I think in doing so, we become, I think, more, uh, not just maybe not credible, but a little bit more um, authentic in our perspectives on this. Because I know a lot of people who have stuck with this and all the respect to them, but they they do it almost full time uh, to the ex- expense of everything else, and I think you you often forget really what we're doing this for is really just to kind of navigate this mess that uh, the society finds itself in, and you know we uh, we need to we need to deal with it. We can't just complain about it. So I think we do that a little bit more, and then we have some perspective to share, hopefully, and at least that's how I feel. But I'd I'd like to comment on that further, actually, because I think it's relevant to what I wanted to do with today's episode. Uh, Nominally, we're going to be discussing Plato, but that's only it's because Hans suggested that Hans wanted to talk about philosophy. And I figured that we might as well, if this is going to be something maybe we do occasionally or have at the very least have a episode, we should probably start at the beginning as far as it relates to the content of this program and i think that uh put another way we'll we'll try to make this somewhat introspective episode because we we we're not political operatives or anything like that we don't do this for a living we do this uh well we can each i guess talk about the reasons we bothered to do this at all if that's something interests you to talk about but it's a process it's we're not by any means experts on any given thing really i mean some of us know more about some things than others and it's really a learning process and we're in real time living and learning and posting on the internet essentially it's what we're doing and uh, it's i think really for myself at least it's i just have a a need to to do this because a lot of the people you end up interacting with life, especially as you get older, aren't necessarily interested in ideas. They're interested in very superficial things. I mean, we live, well, to quote the master, essentially in a city of pigs. And it's, in many respects, nothing new. However, uh, as we get further away from the golden years of our civilization, it's become more pervasive and and i think that to to speak more to that uh we would also like to uh, branch out as well and i think this is a good example of it um one of the one of my favorite shows that we did um i think the last six months was actually just a show on beowulf and 
um, in the Anglo-Saxon mythological world, um, which was a broader discussion on the English people and Christianity. And uh, that is a, a topic of history. And I think that in many ways, uh, there's still plenty of content to do regarding the 20th century or the 21st century. Um, but there's so much more out there as well. And I think that uh, this might be a, a foray into that as well, uh, you know, branching out. We might even start looking at um, 18th century America, 19th century America. Uh, we might look at the ancient world. Um, we've actually had many people over the years, especially with, um, I think, the continued um, good work of many in the scene on, you know, on ancient origins and um, archaeology and ancient DNA, um, do some kind of compendium show on those subjects. And that's something that we would, I think, like to do as well. Uh, and that would take more time. And, you know, so I think that the, the less shows a month, it, it is temporary, um, but it'll allow us to, fo you know, do other things other than 20th century history and focus on on bigger, um, bigger subjects and try and deliver more to you, a bigger bang for your buck, if you will. That being said, the thing about the 20th century is part of the reason that we focus on it is so much has happened that it remains completely relevant. And we could probably do this for you know multiple decades and never really exhaust it. But the 20th century had its roots elsewhere, of course. And one might even say... Um, that the 20th century is a very platonic century. It has many elements of Platonism sort of finally coming to fruition as the, uh, you know, the, the Aristotelian worlds of um, Catholicism and the Enlightenment, um, you know, start to burn out and really started, have already started to burn out well before this period in time. Um, I think that the platonic world, whether we you know, knew it or not, was um, coming back in many ways. And I think unintentionally and maybe to some extent intentionally, uh, Plato and obviously his, his work, The Republic, uh, has played an enormous, enormous role in the formative um, species of many of the 19th and 20th centuries major thinkers conquerors uh warlords um propagandists evildoers however you think uh, of many of these figures uh and much of the world in many ways at various points um resembled almost a platonic sort of maybe a perverted one but a platonic sort of architecture. And I think that it's it's extremely relevant to um, to today, and it's extremely relevant to, uh, we're all Americans, so it's extremely relevant to our history um, as well, because America is uh, was fundamentally, for a long time, uh, an anti-Platonic um, country. Its institutions were anti-Platonic. This is a very, very important subject to the men who founded this country. You would not believe um, how much these men thought about Plato uh, and how much their sort of people that influenced them thought about Plato and thought about the Republic. 
uh, the, you know, I would definitely hesitate to say platonic or anti-platonic though that's something we can we can get into but i will agree that in the 20th century we see bizarrely i mean even in the past you know couple decades especially the realization in reality of ideas that are present in the republic whether they were prescriptive or not is a whole nother question but for example Uh, well i'm I'm on thinking of um, the the horrid Karl Popper. Um, yes, I, we could talk about Popper. That's an in, yes, yeah, terrible person who. Well, Popper um, derided Plato as a fascist. Yes, yes, and and this is, you see, this is part of the you know how Plato in many ways makes an intentional comeback, is is the uh, I think misappropriation of Platonic you know the Platonic world Platonic ideas. Um, to the events of the early 20th century, and or, and uh, I'm sorry, not misappropriation, mis- misappropriation, but mischaracterization, I think is the more proper term. And this is a whole other subject in that how I think Plato has been largely misunderstood, um, especially in the modern world, uh, mostly because people just don't read it anymore. <laughs> And they um, they live very kind of strange, sheltered lives, so it's difficult for them to frame much of what Plato is is um, is actually talking about, and, and try to you know weigh it against Greek history and weigh it against the history of the wider world, and you know, come up with a better understanding of what Plato really, who he really was, and what the Republic really is. Um, I think that the Republic is. Is not necessarily something that was that was ever meant to be this kind of universal political uh, or work universal work of political philosophy the way that it has become. Uh, I think that that is probably one of the greatest disservices to Plato and to the, <laughs> into the world that this was uh, this was turned into some kind of universal um, manual for for life. Uh, you know, it it, it makes zero sense if you know anything about the greek the greek world of antiquity that this would be um, applicable to modern people or anyone after that world basically ceased to exist um you know i I think that there are things that are endlessly applicable and in many respects universal but i think that's what makes it an interesting debate because most of the problems that are presented problems of political philosophy, problems of truth, problems of justice. These are all perfectly relevant questions today. I think one of the main differences, though, that we're faced with today is that in many respects, these questions are almost unimportant. Even though they're valid, they're, they're, Plato is the master pedagogue. He was, he was basically the original teacher for in the context of Western civilization, he's, he's our Confucius. But we live in a world now where the academies are largely a perverse. I mean, he was the founder of the original academy. And they, they like to think of themselves as heirs to this. But I don't know how much that's true. You know, we, can, we can talk about this. Yeah. So I would like to... Um to to first i found this uh, this quote because i um i distinctly remember uh in college 
I had to read several excerpts from the, um, the letters of uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams. Uh, if you ever, all these letters are online, by the way, uh, and they're all very well cataloged, and they're at they're at Founders Archive, and uh, it's a great way to learn about the history of your country, uh, and it's an interesting way to to learn about uh, the world because these were incredibly smart men. Uh, you might not agree with everything they had to say or they believed, but these were probably some of the most well-educated men of their time, um, maybe uh, for the last thousand years, this this generation of Americans that were extremely well-educated and, and well-traveled uh, and had lived very, very uh, expansive lives and had quite a lot to, to say. Um, and I somewhat agree with uh, what Jefferson is saying here, so it's sort of the outset. I am just returned from one of my long absences, having been at my other home for five weeks past, having more leisure there than here for reading. I amused myself with reading seriously Plato's Republic. I am wrong, however, in calling it amusement, for it was the heaviest task work I ever went through. I had occasionally before taken up some of his other works, but scarcely ever had patience to go through a whole dialogue while wading through the whimsies, the puerilities, the unintelligible jargon of this work, I laid it down often to ask myself how it could have been that the world should have gone so long consented to give a reputation to such nonsense as this. How the so distant Christian world indeed should have done it is a piece of historical curiosity, but how could the Roman good sense to do it? Particularly, how could Cicero bestow such eulogies on Plato? Although Cicero did not wield the dense logic of the Demosthenes, yet he was able, learned, laborious, practice in the business of the world and honest. He could not be the dupe of mere style, which he himself was the first master in the world. But the moderns, I think it is rather a matter of fashion and authority. Education is chiefly in the hands of persons who from their profession have an interest in the reputations and dreams of Plato. They give the tone while at school and few in their after years have occasion to revise their college opinions. But fashion and authority apart, and bringing Plato to the test of reason, take from him his sophisms, utilities, and incomprehensibilities in what remains. In truth, he is one of the race of genuine sophists who has escaped the oblivion of his brethren, first by the elegance of his diction, but chiefly by the adoption and incorporation of his whimsies into the body of artificial Christianity. His foggy mind is forever presenting the semblances of objects which have seen through a mist can be defined either in form or dimension. Yet this, which should have consigned him to early oblivion, really procured him immortality of fame and reverence. That's a funny quote. That's a really funny quote. <laughs> that, well, I, I like that because it shows you, like, the, I think the overarching theme here is how little is new under the sun. At least yes. that's my impression when I when I go back and read Plato. And it's funny that the, the early American Jefferson reaction is actually very similar to even the modern college student. It's like, oh yeah, had to read a had to read a few chapters of this, put it away, uh, never looked back on it. But I was vaguely horrified by it. <laughs> <laughs> well, he does have a good point that it's like he basically regards Plato as a as a plaything of. The sophisticated, the sophisticati, you know, the, the 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 academic elite, 
which is ironic because that is ultimately, I think, part of of Plato's work, The Republic, is the creation of said elite. Um, yes. So I don't know why Jefferson would find it so, uh, maybe he didn't find it that uh, shocking that the kind of people that were created or that, you know, that Plato thought ought to be created would then find a great deal of comfort in Plato because it's sort of, um, uh, I guess, justifying their existence in some kind of way. Um, but he, he goes I on, mean, it would, go ahead. It, we should add, I mean, we're not, we're not going to be able to give any kind of exhaustive, we're far, no, by no means are we pretentious enough to, to think that we're going to really add anything new to this insofar as this is one of the most commented on texts ever yes, written. This, this is probably, um, as I said, it's one of the most formative works in political philosophy. I think it, it shouldn't be because I don't think it, it is political philosophy, but it has become an integral part of politics. You might not be interested in Platonism, but... Platonism is very interested in you and has, well, a, and has a very deep impact on your on your day-to-day life in a way you wouldn't, I don't think, get right away. Um, but yeah, we should go into the There's a lot we could get into the, the occult side of it, et cetera. But I'd like to get Adam's input here because you haven't said much, Adam. I'm curious what your experience with Plato has been because this should be a dialogue in the true spirit of the master. Thanks. Uh... In, in spirit, I, I very much appreciate that. In practice, I, I, I'm afraid I don't have much to contribute other than the fact that I'm probably representative of your typical American and that I, I don't really know what to, uh, to think or say about Plato. I remember uh, a brief discussion in school at some point talking about there was a chain of uh, philosophers in Greece from uh, Sophocles to Aristotle to Plato to maybe Socrates. I guess I'm, I'm, I'm this is how bad I am. Um, and right. Plato was, of course, was a, was a playwright. He was another guy. Please yeah. Continue. So it's Socrates, not Sophocles. Socrates, Aristotle, and Plato. The order, I don't know. Uh, the, one of them was a teacher of the other guy. Uh, and then one of them was, uh, into dictatorships the other guy was into democracy or something like that (laughs) i mean this is how old my knowledge is it's like 20 years old from school yeah so that's really funny yeah yeah well uh, who who is the one who is into democracy i don't remember uh probably not plato or am i wrong on that 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 would be correct that there's one thing we can say about plato and that he did in fact uh, have very he presents he allows for very little good arguments to be presented on behalf of democracy but socrates was of course his teacher and the democracy is the one that killed socrates <laughs> right yes. yeah the hemlock uh, the, i know the painting it's a good painting now whether or not that was a good idea uh, is another question but it was a great idea <laughs> uh, so, I actually wanted Edgy to take. delve a little into the to the history of of Plato because I feel as though, um, as Adam was saying, many people might have heard of the Republic and might have read some of it for school, but they might not even understand the life of Plato. And I was thinking about this before uh, we hopped on um, the life of Plato. 
and the world in which he lived is fundamental to understanding what the Republic is really about. What the Republic is really about is not just how to build a Republic, which I think is one of the biggest misconceptions, even by people who've read the whole thing cover to cover. Uh, it is a, it, it is about providing cohesiveness and providing a sense of justice for you to then implement that justice. Why would Plato be so concerned with the subjects of cohesiveness in the Greek world and uh, the sense of justice? Um, well, Plato lived a very, very uh, storied life. And the man lived to be about 80 years old, which in his time was uh, excessively long. Uh, so he was uh, incredibly wise. He was, a, he was a war veteran. He was a traveler. He was born into a... Uh, um, a wealthy family, but he, he lived a, a wide variety of lifestyles over his years. Uh, he was intimately familiar with the Greek world. And, um, you know, the, the fifth century BC, the Greek world is expansive. You have to think this is the height of Greek power. This is the height of pre-Christian Greek culture. The Greeks are masters of engineering, they're masters of trade, masters of philosophy, masters of linguistics. Uh, they have extensive territory uh, and extensive networks all over the Mediterranean. The Greeks were some of the first to venture all the way to the British Isles and some of the first to venture around parts of Africa to venture into the Black Sea to set up colonies on the Black Sea to consort with uh, nearly every kind of people that inhabited the ancient world, um, Scythian, Thracian, Gaul, Italian, Egyptian, all of them. Now, the Greeks were uh, probably the most uh, worldly people, um, and they had all very you know, expansive lives. This was their golden age. And they were, uh, you know, sort of at the precipice of an immense amount of knowledge, the same way that many of the founding fathers were in the late 18th century. They were at the, the golden age of, of, of England, the golden age of the British Empire. And they were, you know, through that, they were bestowed upon themselves these uh, great institutions and this, uh, this great way of life that kind of produced them. Uh, but as I said, Plato was a war veteran. Uh, he fought in war, he, even though he was from a wealthy family. And... Uh, he was, a, he was in war for five years of his life, so he didn't just serve briefly. Uh, now, what's interesting about Plato is that he actually fought in a very well-known war, um, potentially one of the most well-known wars in Western history or of all time, uh, and that is the Peloponnesian War. If you are interested in a work of the Greeks that is not philosophy, that's um, not flowery, that is a military history, arguably the first real military history. Uh, I would read The Peloponnesian War by Thucydides uh, because it charts a brutal, uh, nearly 30-year-long conflict uh, that really has had an immeasurable impact upon the world of today and certainly upon Plato. The Peloponnesian War, uh, very simply, was uh, the Greek Civil War. 
it was a it was a war between various factions within the wider Greek world. And it took place outside of the Peloponnese. It took place outside of of the Greek mainland as a whole. It was fought in the islands. It was fought in the Italian peninsula. It was fought in the Black Sea. It was fought off the coast of North Africa. It was fought in Anatolia. It was fought everywhere. Uh, this was a sort of a proto-world war, if you want to think about that. But it was Greek against Greek. Um, and the two main factions, as some might know, were the Athenians and the Spartans, or the uh, the Lacedaemonians, as they were often called. This is where we get our word laconic, by the way, I believe, is that, you know, speaking in a laconic sense, or you're, uh, you know, almost like a Clint Eastwood style of, of posture, you know, very brief and and dour and, uh, and, and uh, kind of a restrained brute. Um, the Spartans were a, you know, sort of the preeminent military empire, uh, and all of this takes place in the in the aftermath of the chaos of the attempted Persian invasions of uh, the many wars that the Greeks had fought all over the Mediterranean. Um, so it's you know maybe almost a hundred years of accumulated chaos before Plato's life and during his formative years, uh, and it all kind of crescendos with the defeat of the Athenians, the defeat of the Delian League. Um, and the, in many ways, the end of the first, you know, major Athenian democracy, uh, and one of the you know, nails in the coffin, ironically, of the Greek Golden Age, was just the immense fallout of uh, of the Peloponnesian War. So Plato grows up during this. He serves in this war, um, and when he returns, he has a, a very you know, curious encounter with. Um, members of his family. And members of his family, as I said, were very rich. Uh, they were powerful within Athens. They were powerful in other parts of Greece as well. Plato was a, a well-connected man. Uh, and he was he, connected also to members of the basically what was the, the coup of the oligarchs. Yes, yes. So Plato was a part of a, a group of families that um, were part of what was often called, I think, the oligarchic revolution. Uh, another term is the 30 tyrants. And uh, the Athenian world was so collapsed, not just culturally due to the, the shock of the loss against um, the uh, brutish Spartans, the unenlightened Spartans, uh, but also just from a monetary standpoint, from a food production standpoint. If you read um, Victor Davis Hansen's book on on the Peloponnesian War, he describes it uh, in even more brutal terms because he accentuates much of the knowledge of Thucydides with other accounts, uh, with archaeological evidence, and he paints a much you know, more, even more brutal picture of this war. Um, it was, uh, you know, in some areas, you know, full on, almost like genocide, and it was uh, it was damaging to Athenian life. You have to you have to understand that. The prosperity of Athens and the cultured life of Athens, the theater, the academy, gymnasiums, um, and sort of the the control of the the slave labor. Uh, this was, you know, a, a decadent time for the Athenians. Uh, just before Plato's time, they were in the midst of their decadence, and they had um, they had you know, begun to rest in their laurels and were trying to enjoy the finer things in life. Uh, and so all that gets stripped away. 
And there's many Athenians who are old enough to remember life before the war and life when Athens was good. And many people throw their support behind the 30 tyrants movement. Um, now, what's interesting is Plato claims in his own, one of his own works uh, that he was effectively asked to be a part of this coup. You mean in a letter? Y yeah, I can't, I can't remember where. Should, you... So the important thing to remember about when you talk about Plato's works is that we don't have any lectures of Plato. We have only the dialogues. The other things we have access to are his, we, we do have letters that exist, but these aren't like lost lectures either because no one after Plato, like, for example, a lot of Aristotle has been lost and we know it's lost because there are people who are commenting on it and we don't have the original source material anymore. This is, this is especially true, by the way, of any pre-Socratic Greek philosophers, um, we know a great deal about their works through commentaries on their works and have managed to survive. Uh, the, 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 I think the worst case of this is poor old Heraclitus, uh, probably one of the most uh, fundamental Greek philosophers uh, whose many works have just been so lost that uh, we know more about Heraclitus and his works through commentary uh, effectively than we know from him directly. I think that even his uh, the com his his works that have been published are literally called fragments, because it's it's a collection of parables, and that's all we really have left from the man. Um, so Plato basically admitted at one point that, well, you know, I was asked to be part of this coup, and uh, I just couldn't do it. You know, I it was just so unjust and it was unethical, and I was a I thought it might be a good idea, but I, I just couldn't understand the the morality of it. And um, you know whether or not he, he thought was, that he was allegedly disgusted. I, I guess by their yes, of and so uh, you know what I, how I I think of it is that Plato he might have been, um, and this speaks maybe to the character of a people that no one maybe can talk about, but uh, I think that it is also pragmatic. Plato was a very smart man. I think he looked, he assessed the situation, he said, that that's not going to last. <laughs> that is going to implode. And he was right. In fact, the 30 Tyrants movement basically lasted, what, less than a year until the Athenian democracy came back, you know, kind of the edge of a sword. And Plato himself, uh, you know, started to realize that uh, Athenian politics, even once the democracy had been restored, had become so complicated. There was a political life. Um, there, you know, politics was society. It was Athens, and I think that to an extent, this is why he became even more disgusted with the post-tyrant democracy. He often commented that the, uh, the, the, the democracy that came before the 30 tyrants uh, was terrible. But the 30 tyrants made that look perfect. And the democracy that came after them made the 30 tyrants look perfect. And then the whole thing seemed to keep devolving and that Athenian life was just sort of falling apart. 
uh, and I think obviously uh, Socrates being killed, his teacher, uh, completely changed his outlook on you know how politics works in Athens. And so Plato, being a man of Athens, true Athenian, you know, in blood and in spirit, um, basically decides that the political life is not for him. And the life of philosophy is a uh, far greater calling. And the life of travel and the life of experience is far more important than the life of participating in Athenian democracy because the man was continuously asked to play a part by different factions if he would lend a hand, if he would stake his family's name to some political faction. Um, and he decided that, you know, that, that sort of the, the baboonery of Athenian politics after the end of the Peloponnesian War. Uh, was just so disgusting that he he couldn't, and it was so pointless. Uh, and there was nothing great about it. There was no fundamental questions being answered. Uh, so Plato eventually there became this world traveler, uh, and he spent much of his time in um, in Sicily, in Italy, uh, and in Egypt. And we we don't know for sure if he had traveled to Egypt, but. It has been speculated. It's been, yeah. There's well, no way to disprove it. Well, isn't that like the. Uh, he would have been very close to his death. Um, well, so one of the, I think one of the theories is that that's where he learned about the water clock and things like that and how he brought it back to Greece, the, the, the water clock technology. Um, but we do know quite extensively about his time in Italy. And his experience in Italy matches up, I think, with. Something that uh, we've talked about before, which was the, sort of the insanity of uh, the Greek diaspora in Italy, and uh, particularly Pythagoras. And the life of Pythagoras, uh, for those of you who have not heard of Pythagoras, you might have heard of the Pythagorean theorem in, uh, in school. <laughs> um, that's where we, uh, we get that from. We get it from this man. He was a, an Italian Greek. And uh, B squared plus to, B squared equals C squared. Exactly. Um, yeah, you have to understand at the time, much of the Italian peninsula was uh, was settled, not only just settled, but colonized by uh, Greeks. The Almost the entirety of Sicily, the island, was effectively uh, an extension of the Greek mainland. And uh, th this was a deeply Greek region uh, for quite a long time. But the Greeks in Italy had a, had a totally different worldview. Uh, they were separated, I think, too much from the center of the Greek world, which was always uh, Hellas, which is the Greek mainland, and Anatolia, or Asia. And though, you know, that, the, the Aegean was really the Greek world. Uh, the world of Italy for the Greeks was always very bizarre. It was full of uh, political subterfuge, sex cults, uh, and Pythagoras. And Pythagoras was the man who uh, was deeply invested in mathematics, but more importantly, uh, Pythagoras was a man in, in, in Sicily that Plato attempted to enact some of his ideas. And Syracuse, later on in his life with Dionysus, ended up being another one of these uh, 
strange forays. Well, he the, the he would see him murdered shortly before his death. Yeah. He, this was when you know Plato had these um, forays in his life, where he uh, he eventually returned to Athens, and then he would leave, and then he'd come back to Athens, and he would leave, and he'd come back to Athens. Um, I think this speaks a lot about him because he he didn't just sit in Athens his entire life and sort of dream up philosophical ideas. He actually attempted to see the real world and then come up with a worldview after the fact. Um, so eventually Plato returns to his academy that he, you know, sort of sets up. And uh, the the story is that he came from a man named Akademos, which uh, we get the name Academy from. And uh, this was effectively Plato attempting to sort of formalize an institution uh, that Socrates had envisioned. And in many ways, it was, it was formalizing uh, a Greek custom. Uh, Plato was, you know, a, truly a man of Greece, and he, I think, one of his tasks in life, and you see this in the Republic, is codifying and formalizing what it meant to be Greek, what it meant to come from this lineage and from this region of the world. Um, the, you know, the academy or the, you know, a, a teaching center or a, or a teacher. Uh, these were hugely important parts of Greek life, going back hundreds and hundreds of years uh, to the pre-Socratics and beyond that. Uh, the, the Greeks were deeply, deeply obsessed with knowledge. And they were obsessed with the concept of being taught and learning to write and learning to understand the world. Um, this it, it's just something that drove them immensely. Uh, part of their mythology revolved around the quest for knowledge. Uh, part of their mythology in the Homeric epic or epics revolves around the quest for adventure and their quest to learn new things about the world. Uh, so this is just a huge part of the Greek character that I think. Plato... I think it's interesting that when we think about the Academy, we tend to think about it in as a, uh, how you say, platonic form. Yes. In that it's in our minds, I think we have this idea that it was the perfect form of this in so much purity. I mean, when you think of the old Hellenic world, I, I at least can't help but think of youth. It's a very, I, it's associated at least in my mind that way. It's a very young form, a very young form of being in life. I mean, there's so much potential for discovery that civilization had not grown old yet. Which is what I think of when I think of, say, the Middle Ages mm -hmm. and after. I think of a civilization that has, has grown old, especially now. And now it's interesting, too, that we have all these forms, all these words. You know, they talk about democracy or tyranny, Republican forms. These are things that are still with us. And it's almost like a, we ape it, even though the meaning has been lost. Kind of like a cargo cult, almost. Yeah, and and the Greeks are an immensely by this point the Greeks are an immensely old people, but they're still full of uh, of youthful vitality. Uh, you can you know there's all the subjects of the Mycenaean Greeks, the Dorian invasions. Uh, you know the, the subject of who the Greeks really are, their form, their formation. There's a some papers and studies released not too long ago uh, that are very interesting about the uh, genetic 
and you know prehistorical origins of the Greeks, uh, almost near mythological origins these people have. And their history is deeply entrenched by this point Plato has come along. You can argue that been the Greek identity has been somewhat stable uh, and the Greek people have been somewhat stable by this point that Plato was writing the Republic for over a thousand years. They've been an immense part of that peninsula of that of the Aegean. They've been an immense part of the lower Balkans and uh, parts of the Eastern Mediterranean. Uh, so they are at this stage a very, very old people, but they're full of adventure. They're full of a quest for knowledge. They, it, there's sort of a like a momentum that just won't stop them. And by this point, they're at their peak. Yes, they're fighting this immense sort of stupid civil war, uh, and they're they're killing each other in huge numbers and you know slowly um, destroying their civilization. But even still, they they you know they are in charge of one of the most important regions on the planet. They have you know one of the most advanced civilizations at the time, uh, out of anyone up to that time, uh, and they have achieved such a level of civilization that this is what they are concerned with. You know they are concerned with uh, the academy. You know now we are we're trying to formalize and and uh, codify these sort of um, social institutions of our life as Greeks into something um, both idealistic and real, which is a big part of Platonism, ironically. Um, so Plato, Plato comes back and he establishes the academy. And this is the beginning of much many of the works of Plato. Uh, is is after he has fought in war, seen coups, traveled the Mediterranean, met all kinds of people, lived many lives. He comes back and he says, "Now I will. Now I will teach. Now I will be an academic." You know, it, this is not a man who went from living a sheltered life to school to then teach other people. He lived a very hard life in a, in a real life and then tried to, uh, I think, direct a lot of that into a way to teach. Uh, and so part of ultimately the, the academy itself does tie into many of the subjects of the Republic, which is that a huge part of the Republic, and I think you know we'll start to get into this, why is it regarded as this uh, fascist by some, communistic by others, uh, communalistic by others, uh, totalitarian by some? Why is it, does it have these you know connotations? Uh, well, fundamentally, you know, Plato decides that he will notice he will, nobody ever accuses it of being democratic. Yes, no one ever accuses it of being. <laughs> Democratic. Well, Plato effectively, through his travels in the world and fighting in a war and seeing a political system implode, which is not something many people have the opportunity to see in their lives, which is social breakdown, uh, he decides that realistically, the way to build a, a sense of justice is to build a people up. And the way to build people up is to build a sense of justice. And these are two very intertwined facets of life. In fact, to Plato, these are the most important facets of life. The ascension, 
and the quest for justice are, are fundamentally like the most important parts of the Republic. Now, what were we going to say? Next? I think if you could, well, if you could distill it to one, one thing above all else, it's that Plato treats education very seriously as education matters. Yeah. Ideas matter and education is where you start from. Correct. And I think that who controls that education? Ah, so we arrive at, at the real question. Uh, who is who is it that's going to tell you about justice? Who is going to tell you about yeah, the world? Let's let's do the, the basic bitch like college uh, political science class. I mean, it is very much an inversion of Plato because they present it. One of the, the great things about trying to read Plato and you can always come back to it and find something new. It's that he wants you to think. Above all else, he wants you to think. He's trying to teach you how to think. He's not trying to get you to arrive in any given conclusion, although people have accused him of that. I believe that's basically the Straussian interpretation. There's other kind of occult interpretations as well. Uh, I remember there's a account of him giving a lecture on the good and people showing up for this and him just talking about mathematics and astronomy. And they're, they're like disappointed that this isn't some moralistic uh, or theological lesson. He's just talking about knowledge, about knowledge. He's teaching is what he's doing. He's actually teaching. And I think that we're, it's always very cynical from the modern perspective because, you know, in a college, in, an, in, in the academy of today, they want you to come to certain conclusions. And for example, democracy is one of those conclusions as the you know the highest form of social organization and but they can never really give a very good argument for it because i don't think there is a very good argument for it i mean i remember what i would always hear was that it was it was good because it allowed for people to participate or something like this right uh, the one i've heard is uh democracies don't go to war with each other I don't know if I, I mean it, this, but that's a funny one because that's just the 20th century disproves that one very clearly. Um, on a on a scale of numbers, I mean, you have to cite the wars where two democracies With each other are fighting. Or democracies don't go to war. Is oh, they go to war for sure. Oh, they sure as hell go to war. But do they go to war with each other? That's the question. So it's like, you know, the end of history, you must be democratic uh, in order to avoid getting bombed. <laughs> That's like the, the argument. <laughs> and so if you're not, if you're democratic, we won't bomb you. Um, I mean, you could look at it different ways, right? But uh, the the sort of expected conclusion, and this is the whole irony of like the academic process is that they're teaching you uh, correct answers, not the thought process is uh, that you're supposed to be democratic because democracies are nice and they don't hurt well, people. And they usually make the argument along the lines of something about rightly understood interests and that democracies allow the people to pursue their rightly understood interests. And, you know, you always, it becomes tautological in the sense that you're going to always ask, well, how do they know? What that is, well, it's a product of education. 
You know, it's a very self-serving answer to hear that in a college, right? That if you come out of this academy and you participate in the democratic system, you will you will be doing it in your correct interest because you were just informed of your correct interests. It's almost like uh, they always present it as um, they, they will admit that the ideas are going to be coming from them. And in a certain sense, they're they're coming back to Plato. Well, and like I said, there's he's been called many things, and a lot of things have been attributed to Plato that maybe it's not fair to do. I think he what he presents is an approach to thinking, so that you can you can do it. You know, they've it's been postulated that there's you know some sort of occult secret teaching. You see a lot of that, right? And uh, like secret histories. The idea that there's going to be a different education for the elite. And it's interesting with Plato because he kind of, he suggests this, right? He suggests, for example, that the, the guardian class be removed uh, from the masses in this way and basically be given a special education. He also admits uh, one thing that makes Plato a little tricky is he, I shouldn't say admits, but he, he in the work, puts out there the possible value in lies certainly admits or we can say he they widely come to the conclusion of the power pardon me of the power of myths and power of lies i mean this is why the poets are dangerous right so it's always difficult uh, to try to say well what, what does plato mean by this i i don't think it's really the point You know, one of the something or something to add to that. Um, Plato is not necessarily either concerned with, you know, this this supposed guardian elite um, being uh, sort of, I guess, power brokers or anything like that. You know, this it's not Hobbesian. Which is, I think, a, a somewhere someone that gets looped in with Plato. In other words, there's this assumption that Plato is is working from this frame of you need a, uh, you need, uh, strong dictators and you need a uh, power brokers and you you need to have this sort of Hobbesian worldview of of total rule for the good of order. Plato is, is in the Republic is seemingly more concerned with something more fundamental because i think that he as i said had the luxury in a way of seeing political systems collapse he got to see a political system which had been stable for a long time unwind followed by a, an unstable system uh, and then another system that had almost no stability uh, come into its place all in a short amount of time, so he was able to understand that you know you can you can worry about uh, the power broker and rule by authority or rule by whatever. But, you know, this is this is not this is trivial. This is minutia. What you're really attempting to do is is approach uh, as he would on many subjects, particularly in uh, his works like the Timaeus, uh, something more of a Platonic form. 
and he's dealing with the platonic ideals of both a city and a soul, an individual. Now, these are sort of the, the, the tripartite elements, I suppose you could say, of the Republic. Justice being um, more of a universal force in, in, in acting between all of them and underneath them and over them. Uh, almost like a sort of a the gravity that binds all these these three things together. Uh, but the the city, the soul, and the individual are much more important to Plato. And so he's not concerned with having the guardians be these sort of strong men. He's concerned with them being uh, the most educated enough and the most worldly enough to understand. Uh, the fundamental nature of a city and of a soul. And that the soul of a city is, especially in Plato's time, he believed, uh, was the collective souls of its inhabitants and the, and the sense of justice that animated them. He was you know, viewing these as almost physical forces uh, interplaying with one another. And much of the Republic deals with how you're studying these quasi-physical forces, metaphysical forces that are, you know, they're not just ideals, they're not just subjects of discussion, they're very, very real to Plato. And they also have idealistic forms to him. All that's real has a form. All that, all that has a form will eventually have something real that mimics it. And this is an immense part of, of Platonism in general, and it, this is how it kind of feeds into the Republic. So the Guardians, you know, I think something Adam was asking earlier, you know, who, who's in charge of the education and all this sort of stuff? Well, these are the Guardians and the sophisticated and the people who are educated in a specific way to then create the conditions for ensuring that education remains uh, – the most pure formalized version of the pre-existing you know greek social institutions of of education which is a uniquely almost a uniquely greek institution we, we think of it as sort of a a commonplace uh, facet of life around the world today uh, but in the world of that time this was an anomaly this is an immense anomaly. This is an anomaly that even a small proportion of the population was considered educated. And this is a, a part of an expected part of life for some people. Um, so to, you know, go ahead. Well, okay. So these are, these are definitely the questions worth asking. I mean, Adam, you asked specifically who does the educating? Is that your, was that your question? Yes. Uh, I suppose it can extend to who, whom should be educated. Uh, this comes to my mind uh, quite strongly because I've recently heard the argument that uh, public education is a public good. And I think under the right circumstances, one might agree with that. But under different circumstances, one might disagree with that. And it's sort of depending on a lot of your point of view. Um Obviously, there's a lot of politics now, probably always has been, but I think especially in the past 10 years in public education for children, pushing um, certain agendas, and many people feel like uh, 
they don't have a choice other than to homeschool at this point because their children are being indoctrinated on things that really don't serve them. Um, and obviously this is not what parents want. They want the system to give their children some sort of, uh, value and the system as a whole wants the people to be valuable, uh, to it. And if those are at odds, then you're, you're kind of setting yourself up for a conflict. And so I don't know if Plato ever really foresaw the scale at which education has been industrialized, uh, to the point where it is today. But, um, he must have come across with this issue as to whose education, what is the education, uh, who determines that and you know, all these things. Um, I, I don't think it's as simple uh, as, as stating, you know, uh, a priori that it's obvious that education is a public good. I, I, I don't agree with that. I think it depends on what is being taught. If you agree with it or not. I don't think Plato would ever confuse, uh, public mass public education for education or so-called mass public education for education. Well, Plato did believe uh, necessarily in mass education. Now this was, this is in a different scope. You have to, again, you know, transport yourself to the world of, fourth century BC Athens. And you have to understand this is a, uh, the actual Athenians are a tight knit population. Everyone knows each other. Everyone knows their role in life. It's a very actually, uh, by this point, a very rigid society. There's not a lot of mobility or anything like that. Uh, there's a recognition that everyone has their place. But Plato fundamentally believed that everyone should have some level of equal baseline education. And in fact, education was in, in his mind a perfect system because you could at least impart a sense of justice, a sense of intelligence, on ethics, fundamental questions of, of physics and metaphysics and all these sorts of things onto everyone. And you could also easily uh, determine, uh, in many cases, those who excelled because you would be able to see that they were excelling. So you educated everyone and you find a way to quickly determine who is above average intelligence. And you were then able to start filtering those people and you're eventually able to distill a very select group just through the system you've constructed. And that select group is the group that you are looking for in terms of your societal management, and not just societal management, but societal leadership. And Plato is much more focused on education as a means of achieving leadership rather than education as a means of achieving uh, management of a thing or management of a group of people, much of the way we think that we learn, that we are taught now. You know, you're pre prepared for a job. You're prepared for uh, to go kind of be the cog in the machine, that, that sort of mentality. But Plato is sort of postulating in his Calipolis, you know, this, uh, this imaginary city. Uh, he's postulating this notion of, uh, I'm, I don't want people to just learn how to manage, or I don't want people to necessarily 
learn how to uh, get along. You know, I'm not, they're not concerned with these uh, sort of day-to-day minutiae of life. They're concerned with uh, providing a baseline for the society that everyone is invested in and then filtering out the pr- properly. And to Plato, he, he had a great point that um, if you have a society that's well-educated enough and, and smart enough and sophisticated enough, at some point you won't need many of these laws. And if you have a society that's, in his mind, dumb, um, not sophisticated, that doesn't have leadership, the laws don't matter because they're not listened to. So, as I said before, on the subject of education, as with the subject of many other things in the Republic, Plato is looking at these as, as wider systems. He's really, you know, a lot of it is sort of um, moral deduction, it's deduction of ethics and morals. But people don't understand that it was the, the, maybe the science, the methodology by which he is trying to kind of build a, a, a more physical understanding of the systems of, of his republic, of his sort of imaginary city and how it both kind of works in practice and kind of works in the real world and how it ought to work in the idealistic uh, world of forms, you know, the, the perfect republic. The thing about knowledge can be taught, specific knowledge can be taught. I can teach you how to do a specific thing. I can teach you a specific mathematic formula. I can teach you what, you know, a given constellation is, et cetera, et cetera. Morality is not the same thing. Uh, Morality and ideas about the world, these come more from myth. And this is a big theme. I think that it was interesting. I related earlier the account where somebody was basically like, well, we went to go hear about the good and we basically just got lecture on mathematics and somewhere else Plato had written. I'm not sure exactly where, which letter it was in, but he had written something to the effect that incommunicable things are not communicable. And I'm going to communicate there. There is no, he doesn't have, there's no dogmatic platonic teaching necessarily ideology or theology or anything like this. It's an open door as far as that goes, but he presents some interesting things that are very relevant to the, for example, to the 20th century. I mean, you have ideas of uh, collectivism, abortion, uh, eugenics. This, These are, I think, the first mention in Western history of eugenics as a serious idea was in the Republic. Yeah, this is this is feeds into the you know insane paranoia around this book. <laughs> this some of these passages on on the uh, on the eugenics angle. Uh, you know what's interesting too is that part of why Plato is regarded on the subject of education still regarded as this. Uh, totalitarian figure or apologist for totalitarianism uh you know plato maintained uh, at several points in some of the mid books the republic is separated into multiple books i think it's some of the books in the middle uh he goes into you know the subject of education and and you know how it ought to work and what it ought to lead to is another big part of it for example, um, 
as I said, education is conceived as a systemic approach to solving all these societal problems by Plato. And he fundamentally believed that once you solve those problems, you should allow those who have worked their way through the education system to become the philosopher kings of society, the aristocrats of society, um, uh, the, the, the sort of the uh, the people who rule with honor and all this sort of stuff. Uh, you should allow them to dictate belief, and you should allow them to censor. Censorship, censorship should be allowed. People should not be allowed to see or hear certain things. Um, people should not be allowed to believe in certain things. People should be, you know, taught to understand their people, understand their homeland, understand their city, and support it at all costs. Uh, so Plato, you know, fundamentally believed that you have human society. You, there's no changing that. We might be able to augment it. We might be able to improve it, but you're still going to have human societies, have fundamental human impulses. So Plato doesn't ever really attempt to dissuade you from thinking, oh, now that you are sophisticated and you do not need the, the confines of the law, and that means that you don't need a homeland, you don't need a people, you don't need a city, you don't need a place. And fundamentally, that, that is Plato's completely against that at multiple points throughout the Republic. He makes it clear that not only should the rulers have a, a sense of attachment to their homeland, but everyone should. And that this is a natural check on devious, perverse behavior because I, you know, Plato probably foresaw that there, there have, we have a potential problem here that's playing out in the United States and other parts of the Western world right now. Uh, your sophisticated elite, quote unquote, um, are actively working against the interests of the country. I mean, knowingly, consciously, actively working against the interests of the country. Uh, completely. Yeah, uh, to this point, there's a lot of very, from the American context, there's a lot of very bizarre contradictions in America. One, you have the American myth of meritocracy. So you have the idea that whoever is the best at the thing, I mean, this is a rationale for capital, capitalism, but whoever's the best at the thing should do the thing, right? You know, may the, the, the best man win. But then if you ask them, well, then does that mean that the man who is best at ruling should rule? They'll become confused because there's also the democratic myth in America where uh, there is, you know, <laughs> for whatever yeah. reason, we don't want a Caesar. We don't want a dictator because we're Americans, goddammit. Well, I think that the most commonly cited example of this uh, strange dichotomy is the corporation, where it's run effectively as a dictatorship, where the strongest or at least uh, hopefully the wisest man is in charge, uh, and also the strongest typically because business is pretty cutthroat. But uh, when it comes to the government, I think there is some nuanced counterargument to maybe your, your sort of challenge question is that, yes, you want to have competition allowing the strongest to gain power, but once they become so powerful, a la Amazon taking over 10% plus of the retail space and growing, 
um, there needs to be a counterbalance to that. And that's the sort of argument for antitrust, the argument for democratic uh, involvement of other people. Uh, because once you become so powerful and so, uh, you know, in charge of, of all the apparatus that can uh, wield power, you can entrench yourself whether you're actually still the strongest or not. And that's, I think, what we've seen throughout history where there have been uh, maybe a a warlord, uh, Genghis Khan or whatever, who who is the most capable. And then his children, in the case of the Khans, there was uh, Kublai and Genghis, and so there was some, some transference of capability there. But there also are many cases in history where you have uh, idiot kings because or idiot emperors because the uh, line of succession was passed on um, through the family, but it was not passed through the meritocracy of the people uh, needing a, a, the strongest ruler. So I think there, there are counter arguments. So Plato does having... address this. Okay. Well, the Republic addresses this, I should say. And in the case of the guardian class, you no longer have, by address this, I'm referring to the potential for corruption of power, the dictum of uh, Lord Acton, the liberal dictum, absolute power corrupts, etc. But that the guardian class would have have no private property and would hold everything in common, uh, and they would have no lineage either. Uh, they would they would not know who their children were. They would not know if they're banging their sister. I I think the I wonder at this point and where we're at, if these are, if these ideas really matter, because it's one of the themes is that ideas matter, but who do they matter to most? And there's a sort of subtext of power as being, I mean, this would be sort of a Nietzschean interpretation, but it's a relationship of ideas and education to power. And the reality is we're totally fucking shut out. And I don't mean us, like we're not important, but I mean, our spiritual uh, kinsmen who would maybe in another age have positions of power. We're completely shut out of the elite. At this point, the elite consists of Jews and traitors. So a serious discussion about justice or an ideal organization of society and the myth of society at this point how relevant is it? I mean, is there really value anymore in philosophy and reading philosophy and discussing philosophy? Is it, as people would be quick to accuse, a form of just uh, personal, I guess, mental masturbation and satisfaction and just using the mind as an exercise for games? Because been around academic types, I mean, they, to them, it really is sort of just a game at this point because the trajectory that we're on is uh, going of its own accord. Well, yeah, this conversation and this debate, I think Nick and I have had many times uh, off air, perhaps slightly uh, in ways on air as well, but I think it's a valid question. I mean, I am fascinated by many of the things that Nick is. Um, I, however, am, I've grown cynical. I'll put it that way. And I've, however, I've, um, I've also tried to keep alive some 
some small part of me that does appreciate these things because I think in a, in a properly run society, there would be and should be a place for these ideas. Uh, the frustration I run into is that we may know what is right, yet we have no power to implement it. Uh, and I'm struggling to find a way to, you know, the how as to how to get to that. And, and, and absent that discovery, I need to focus on things that I, I can actually achieve. And, you know, perhaps there are ways you can structure your life and your community to what degree you can do that, at least, uh, where these ideas may be applicable. But on a national, let alone inter- international scale, I think we're we're being a little bit delusional when we uh, we expect ourselves to be at the at the reins. Now, maybe we can be part of a conversation at some level, and at some point in the future, perhaps some of these ideas get passed down. But I think we do need to have a healthy level of skepticism and always ask ourselves, you know, how how practical um, and how. Uh, practicable are these ideas because I think an idea without the ability to implement it is really um, of no value. It's sort of like you have a uh, a business with no sales and no pr- no price tag on the product, and if the product has no price, it has no value, at least in the marketplace. Um, so that that's a sort of perhaps cynical view, but I think it is somewhat of a realistic one. And and I, I want these things to have a place. That That's really my goal here. It's not to quell them or, or, or stifle them. But it's really just I want to be able to get them somewhere. This is the conversation I wanted to have. This is exactly it. Because the reality is these other people, they're having uh, – I mean, anyone who's ever had power in any, in any real sense, I mean, they, they've read Plato. I mean, maybe they maybe they only read a little bit of Plato. Maybe they just had Plato explained to them. But this has always been a very important book for the, in the context of power. Just like you know, the prince. I mean, these are things that I mean. I guess Joe Biden has probably read. Not that it matters what Joe Biden thinks. But it is it is easy to become sort of nihilistic about it all. I mean, if philosophy doesn't have a place in your life, does it have any value? And I would argue that it does have a place in your life. It has a place in everyone's life who is given to any kind of serious self-examination. Because what do you really benefit from? I mean, I know that people do the cave thing over and over again, and it's almost like, you know, hits blunt outside of like, philosophy 101 class like what if it's all illusion man but there's a lot to be said for it i mean what does it really benefit you to understand what's going on if there's nothing that you can do about it when really just causes you suffering the study of history is very much this way i mean the study of history is the study of tragedies really it's not i mean philosophy should be as nietzsche called it the gay science it should be something that brings you some joy and helps you better engage with life. And I'd like to like to say that, you know, it, it's helped, but really in a lot of ways it leads to sort of a pessimistic outlook in the context of where we're at now. It's definitely a difficult time. It's, it's, it is a dark age very much. I wanted to ask Nick, uh, maybe Adam as well. 
there's a there's a particular piece of uh, the sixth book in the Republic. And uh, it's often, you know, it's known if you ever, you know, do any undergrad philosophy courses or anything like that, um, the ship of the state uh, analogy. Uh, and it's a it's a big part of the sixth book in the Republic, and it's sort of the turning point of the uh, of the wider work, and that it it starts to become less focused on just the, the dialogue and moral reasoning, and more focused on larger analogous reasoning and larger parables, and even eventually starts to delve into uh, Greek mythology towards the end. And uh, effectively, the the analogy goes like this. The people that own the ship, think of the Athenian Triumph, which is the premier ship of its day. Uh, people that own it, let's say, are the citizen population of Athens. Uh, so these are people that can vote. These are people who are regarded as Athenian citizens. They are Athenian almost mostly by blood. Um, they have earned their right to citizenship. They play a part in the country. Uh, they play a part in the day-to-day -day functioning in the longer-term goals uh, of uh, some trade or some profession or some piece of land. Um, and, you know, these are, these are semi-important people. Uh, and Plato believes that these people are they're politically they're powerful, uh, but they lack the ability to deductively reason uh, with their current situation. They're not intellectuals. They're not philosophers. Uh, they're not aristocratic, many of them. They don't understand the inner workings of day-to-day -day government. They understand some pieces of it, and they mostly understand the goings-on of their own life. Uh, but these are the owners of society, effectively. Society is theirs. They are the people of, of that society, and thus they are the owners, Plato. You know, this is sort of just accepted as fact in Plato's world, that the, the people of a country are its owners. Uh, and this is a big part of the Republic, effectively, is that you know, it's regarded as anti-democratic, but effectively the people are, would, in, in Plato's idealistic world, the people, the owners, would uh, willingly and uh, and and quite honestly, uh, erect this system to create rulers for them to help them rule their country effectively. Uh, but Plato then goes on and says that the crew of this ship, the people that uh, turn the oars, uh, man the sails, defend it, they are uh, the politicians. They are the, the men who are the political representatives in the Athenian assembly. And they are backstabbers, they're tricksters, thieves, uh, whoremasters, as, uh, as Cromwell called the, uh, the parliamentary body that he dismissed. Uh, these are some of the scummiest people. And yet they are the ones who execute day-to-day -day political decisions. Um, and so Plato fundamentally wants people to believe and maybe think about this all a certain way. 
Uh, is it possible that perhaps this is not a, a, a proper arrangement, or is it possible that um, this is sort of inevitable that you will, if you attempt to have this system, you will uh, wind up with this exact same outcome, no matter who tries it, that you will wind up with, uh, you know, sort of the backstabbers in charge of the oars on the ship. Do you guys, you guys like kind of think that that is somewhat accurate to not even just today, but in general to politics? Well, I, I think there's always seems- been an issue. I have a very short comment, um, but I think it's always been an issue that power attracts those that seek power. And that group is not necessarily the group that you want to be holding power. It's sort of, uh, I forget the exact phrase, but you want a reluctant but capable leader. You don't want a leader who's gleefully uh, looking to have power because typically the, they're willing to uh, step over people and, and be corrupt effectively. Uh, and so you, know, you, you just look at our leadership and, and you see that writ large. Um, so I think it's always a problem in any system. Uh, the real question, I think, is how do you mitigate that and attract the, the most talented people to, to wield power? Well, these are the questions is what, what are the qualities that would make for a good ruler and what a state, I mean, would not the ideal state be a state that is ruled by the people best fit to rule it as in best fit, meaning who will achieve the good for the people they're responsible for. I mean, it seems, it seems sort of obvious, doesn't it? And this is where a really funny thing that you have in the, in the current year is the the whining from system media and Jews about the relationship between populism and authoritarianism. I always think this is really funny when I see it, and you see it a lot. You know, because sometimes you'll hear them make an argument like, well, nobody, nobody would choose a dictatorship, but then they turn around and essentially imply exactly that. And they're not wrong. I mean, if someone is going to exercise the will of the people or exercise power, in a way that is good for the good, for justice, why would you not want that? Why would you want them to be put up for some kind of election cycle? Wouldn't you just want them to be king? I mean, why is it that in liberal, so-called liberal democracies, any time you start getting a, a mass of popular support, uh, they start talking about like dictatorship and authoritarianism. Well, that, that's that's it? because they're they're lying. But it, it's I, I think the idea though is is supposed to be okay to answer your or try to answer your question as to why wouldn't you want the uh, the best leader to be dictator? I mean, I would, but the problem I worry about is what happens when that guy dies, uh, and do you have a system that can actually have a line of succession? The same thing is in corporations. I mean. You have uh, founders who typically uh, are the, the sort of spirit of the company, and, and if they're capable managers, they uh, will often lead their companies to greatness. Sometimes they have to be uh, pushed aside, though, because they're often not very good managers. Uh, Steve Jobs is a commonly excited example where he was too immature to basically run the company, but uh, he did actually grow a lot in his uh, walking through the desert period, as they call it, and came back and did tremendous, uh, tremendous things. And, and so people would love to have that guy cloned and 
continue to live on for as long as possible. Uh, but uh, they they don't. And then you see what happened to Apple where Tim Cook, the uh, sort of uh, shadow of a replacement, has really innovated uh, zero since uh, he took over. I mean, I think he came up with a watch and uh, a really crappy uh, navigation uh, tool on the iPhone that forces you to use it unless you uh, go into settings and disable it. And so I think that's the real long-term problem of having a dictatorship is that the guy who is good uh, may have a great run, but he's also very vulnerable to being assassinated and then eventually he's going to die. And so who's who's next? And then if you have a system that has all that power as the prize, you attract, again, a lot of those very vicious types to come in and try to get it, uh, and then they they don't let any good people come in. Uh, they just lock you out. So I think it, it's it's a very hard problem. Um, I don't think there's any well, that's super obvious question, answers. The state would be able to continue to select for this. It would be able to continue. It would, yeah. it would have the quality of longevity. Well, that's why it's the ideal, and that's why it doesn't exist. Well, the, the Chinese have sort of an attempt to do this, and many people have called them capitalist, communist. I would argue they're more fascist than anything. And they have a system that is extremely rigid and closed, but... What they do is they kind of have recreated their old Mandarin system of just ridiculous amount of testing of of their population. And those that are the most capable are invited to join the Communist Party. And they effectively have a monopoly on some of the most talented people in the country. And those people are supposed to be set up to lead. But now you see what's happened with this guy, uh, Xi Jinping, he's effectively rewritten the constitution so that he can be dictator for the rest of his life. So, I, I mean, maybe he's a good leader. I don't really follow Chinese politics to, the, to great detail. I just know that they're a powerful country and uh, economically they're extremely uh, potent, but um, their political system is a little bit confusing to me. But I do understand that their recruitment practices are set up to attract those that are supposedly the best. Um, and I don't see that in America. I mean, you, you sort of do with the Ivy leagues, but I mean, there was, uh, there, there's, there's long been, long been a joke about, you know, people like George W. Bush finding themselves at Yale and pulling a C average and becoming president. I think that that joke is there for a reason because it, it's sort of a, a pattern going back to John Kennedy. Um, Ancestors you know, cry. Yeah, they're, they're, they're just not that capable, but they have they have the connections, and I think that's unfortunate. Uh, most people would agree with that, I think. But, I mean, yeah, you're right. I mean, we don't have any real examples, but the uh, I think the Chinese have done the best modern attempt at doing something like that. And, uh, you know, I don't want to live in China, but uh, sometimes I, I wonder if I want to live in America. So... Well, there, there's I mean, we do L- live in a literal fucking dystopia. I mean, it's it's in many ways it resembles the you know utopia. Obviously, won't become a word until much after Plato, but it's essentially what it is, right? Or at least what is being debated is what what would it look like? What would the ideal form of the state be? Yeah, there, there's a there's a good but, blogger uh, by the name of Severian. His uh, blog is called Rotten Chestnuts, and he uh, he came up with a glossary of uh, terminology in our scene and 
um, trash canistan came to uh, to mind as describing our current country. Well, and we do we have in so many ways it resembles it, but it's inverted. You have basically a small technocratic elite who are working for the destruction of the public good, essentially trying to design some kind of fucking breakaway civilization seems to be the the end goal where it's like how can we have the guardians with nothing nothing to to watch over well i think that the the ship analogy is actually perfect for that because there's an element of of the the analogy that i didn't get to that in in that plato is effectively saying is that the people that become the crew of the ship they eventually, uh, through warfare and through subterfuge, sabotage, trickery, um, they whittle themselves down to the point where there's only one man left standing that is strong enough, has defeated enough of the others to take power. But all this man knows how to do is take power. His whole life has been built towards achieving an office, achieving a position, taking power. Uh, but he knows nothing else. And now he's in charge of a battered, decaying ship that, that he doesn't own, uh, that has been, you know, now is now crewed by people who hate him for having risen over them. And there's a level of immense distrust and dysfunction as the ship rots and fades away and it breaks away into uh, a new civilization that's almost, you know, sort of a, a dual civilization. Something that I think has happened in, in our world, in our country, is that there is another civilization already. There is a breakaway civilization. The, the, the civilization of both the American and the transnational elite is a different civilization at this stage. I mean, they're they're yeah, dependent on they're dependent on us, but they already have achieved. They're that. They they're trying to break away from if, the, the population. Yeah, if they weren't, if there was, if there was no dependency left, they would slaughter us. Exactly. I mean, what do you think? They, what do you think this COVID shit is? I mean, they're they're trying to they're put slow us, killing, put us, they're put, slow killing us, put us into but the they matrix. Would us I mean, it's, they would yeah. just make get it over with. They want robots to replace you know all their little worker worker bees because the worker bees might revolt, and it's. Uh, it's pretty clear to them that they'd rather not have to deal with that. Well, this, this is a modern saying, but um, especially in the American context, uh, the politicians elected a new people. And they, they, they're in the process of doing so. And in, in some way, I think in sticking with Plato's analogy, uh, the ship captain and his underlings will simply elect new owners whether they make themselves the owners or they make someone else an owner who's subservient to them either way. Um, there does seem to be a trend here throughout. And this is one of the ways in which I think Plato is more universal on the, on points such as this is that there is a general trend and it's, it's somewhat odd amongst the history of the world's elite that we know of. And then they all almost always go down this path. They become a breakaway 
Um, they seek to destroy their dependency on the people that they should be beholden to, or they may, may have once been beholden to. They become insulated. Um, they become self-serving. And they eventually seek to undermine their own people, whether it's through political marriage, merging of kingdoms, planned invasions, what have you. Um, in the modern age, it appears to be deindustrialization is one of their newer tools. Uh, but there is this trend where inevitably the people that achieve political power who have nothing else to do but achieve political power, this is the inevitable consequence of not knowing how to do anything else but achieve political power is that you now only know how to keep that political power. It's the only new skill you'll ever learn at that point. And what's the ultimate way of keeping political power in some kind of democratic institution? Well, you can simply replace the, <laughs> the democracy. You can replace the members of the democracy with whomever you choose. And at that point, you know, your, your, your stability is in as the elite, as the politicians and so forth is is assured for a longer period of time uh, and you can more easily justify your own your own existence um, and so plato ultimately you know you know in, in the end of the analogy plato basically postulates that uh, the the real pilot of the ship the real governor of the ship uh, ought to be uh not just someone who is actually skilled in in seafaring, but someone who knows everything, someone who has studied the stars, uh, the weather patterns, uh, the, the all the mysteries of life, the mysteries of people, the interactions of people, every detail, large and small. The person who has sat back and studied and been overlooked is probably the person that you should make the head of the ship. And once he has made the head of the ship, it is his ship to command, and no one else can challenge him. That is the iron law, is that, you know, he he will eventually kind of be chosen through, almost through, um, like, a, like a messianic figure. Well, so this and is then, the problem. I, yeah. I I can see how this is the ideal, the platonic ideal, I guess, or the philosopher king. But how do you achieve this? I mean, well, who, who, who on the ship is just going to volunteer this this guy who's like in the hold, you know, scrubbing the, the deck or something as the new leader? I mean, no, this is not normal. Like, people don't do that. You know what I mean? Well, that's that's totally that's totally true, and I, and I think Plato fully admits that. And that appears to be most of what the preceding books are about, particularly Book Three in the Republic, is about the subject of education. And a lot of this just goes back to education. It goes back to the academy. Ultimately, most of the Republic goes back to the academy. Much as Plato's life, a lot of it mirrors his life. As I said in the beginning, I think the best way to understand the works of Plato is just to understand his life. Um, and everything goes back to the academy at some point. He'll always find his way back there. That's, that is what he's there to do. And the academy to the extent is... It, 
Well, to the extent that we know that Plato himself held to this as an idea, as a personal ideal, he wasn't able to see it realized in in history, in his time. He wasn't able to see it realized. But I think he identifies the most important thing for our time, and it's, it's the power of myth. You know, for example, why is it then, Han's talking about the... Uh, the degeneration of the ruling class. Well, why is it, for example, in our time, that they still cling to the old myths? You know, why, why, why has the mask not just completely come off? I mean, liberalism, as much as they have all these pretenses, is imperialistic, uh, intolerant, uh, crushes, you know, dissent, anything, any, any ideas that don't accord with them, they'll, they'll be crushed commits war crimes, atrocities. I mean, the biggest war crimes of the 20th century were committed by ostensibly liberal regimes. But they maintain they maintain these myths because in a certain sense, I don't think that they're really in control of them. And I think yeah, that's why there's this this fear of the of the poets and the myth makers. I mean, he, in his time, you're dealing with Homer, essentially. You're dealing with the, the the Greek myths, and if you've never read, I, I recommend um, uh, the for, for Greek myths read read Robert Graves' accounts of Greek myths. It's, it's a really good place to go, and they're pretty funny. I mean, you know, every, everyone knows this. Who's you know taken any kind of classical education at all i mean you probably encountered some of it but it's the it's filled with rape and violence and incest and plato saw this as being you know a bad moral precedent but you can't really fight against this because these are things that people are have absorbed before education they're, they're prior things and in some ways they probably a lot of it probably emanates from the racial subconscious at least well, and there's and, and plato even in incorporates greek mythology into the republic the socrates descent into hades and his discussion with hades is is a part of of the story and it's it's a it's a fundamental part of the wider discussion of philosophy i think that uh, i said something earlier you know plato is is attempting some kind of cohesiveness why is he looking at cohesiveness for for greeks well, they're living in a in a post uh, annihilation environment. They're living in the the aftermath of the Peloponnesian War, and they're looking for a sense of cohesiveness on the many subjects that animated their lives: philosophy, the theater, politics, exploration, sailing, and their mythology. And the Republic has all of that. It is the most cohesive Greek work in many ways, um, potentially outside of the metaphysics by Aristotle. It is, it is one of the most cohesive works, uh, and it is far more comparable to, uh, I think, actually, ironically, more Enlightenment-era philosophy, which is deeply cohesive and also very expansive, something like Immanuel Kant or or even Nietzsche, you know, Plato is sort of ahead of his time in this way. But he he did inculcate these elements, these these myths that you couldn't really get rid of in a people. 
um, that were important. Yes, and, and he's, is, he's not. He's is, not. He weren't, didn't think they were great things, but he understood. He had the. He had the wherewithal to understand this is a this is a fundamental part of what it means to be Greek. Plato was not trying it, it, to make Greeks not Greek. Well, well, we don't know. I, I'm not sure if we know that. Um, I think that he wanted he wanted to educate them, and in the context of the Republic, what we see and it's a lesson that I think we can very much apply to our situation. You can't, you, you're going to have to, if, for example, a process of total social engineering, which is what's proposed in the Republic, if you're going to design a state from the ground up and completely engineer this, you're going to need total control of the myths. But the myths are probably, from a revolutionary perspective, you're, you're dealing with things that already exist. You're in history, right? And so you're going to have to work on some level with the myths that you're given. And in an American context, this is one of the reasons I have a very, I do have a very pessimistic view of America, because I don't think that there's a lot to work with as far as what myths, what are the, what are the lies, in a, you know, to put it in almost a cynical way, what are the lies that we should be turning to for hope? I mean, freedom, uh, America as a, like some kind of white nationalist country in the founding is that is that something that we should be promoting? I mean, I don't personally. I, I can't really take responsibility for any of this. I think that maybe it's necessary to have, at the very least, the myth of victory, because you don't want, you know, people who engage with reality. It's very depressing, and you don't, you do want to maintain hope because it's good for your soul, right? You you can't really go through life believing this is the fucking end this this is absolute extinction of your bloodline i mean that's that's not a healthy perspective to have yeah well it's interesting because the myths of the greek world were believed to be true i mean the trojan war we're talking about homer greeks accepted this as factual history and it, not only factual history, uh, but in a fundamental part of their of their life, they were the descendants, or the and they were the descendants of the Greeks who fought in uh, the greatest war of all time. This is how they conceived of it. Those were our fathers who fought in that war, and this you know it's hard for the United States. And Americans, the closest thing we have to the Homeric epic is the American Revolution and everything that led up to it. That is our Homeric epic. And you do see, to to your point, in the the modern perverse, you know, um, ship of a state that is America, uh, the one myth that is allowed to be sort of graffitied on the side of the ship is the myth of the revolution. Now, it's horribly perverted, and it's also both upheld as cause de jour for uh, interventions around the world, but also as proof of America's, uh, you know, sort of violence and and hatred and all this sort of thing. It, it has a dualistic meaning, and 
But that, or that is the only, that is sort of the the Homeric epic for America, and I think to your to your point as well, um, you can kind of come down on one of two sides. You can be like you can be in the vein of Plato, and you can under I think have a a deeper understanding for your own people and understand that this is just who they are, and they believe this. This is a this is a part of our character, and I have to at least accept part of that. And try and deal with it somewhat honestly. I think the discussion of Hades is is part of that. Uh, where or you can have the other side of it, which is you know the United States, where the the elite and the sort of the Platonic figures, uh, I guess the the perverse guardians, are they look at the the myth of the revolution. They look at the uh, the early days of America that many people still people still kind of have a romanticism towards they hearken back to and they find ways to exploit it. They don't find ways to make it part of something bigger, which could also be perverse, but um, they don't even try and do that. They immediately find ways to exploit it for their own purposes. Well, well yeah, if, if you look at the, the process of, of culture distortion that took place with the but uh, the Jewish control of, of Hollywood, of basically of the uh, the shadows on the wall, it was bit by bit where, you know, we've gotten to the point where it's getting uglier and uglier. But early on, it was more subtle. It's just a little, little, little tweak here, a little tweak there, all relying on a, a surface presentation of a familiar myth. And Plato seemed to be frustrated by the inability to get across education when you're struggling with intransigent belief in in some lie that doesn't serve the the good doesn't serve where we want to go and i can relate to this frustration i mean i think one of the most american uh, alex jones said some there's like a famous alex jones uh soundbite or whatever where he, he says uh 1776 will commence again if they try to come for our guns yeah, I was on Piers Morgan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, I think, like, Alex Jones is a really uh, good example of the American problem. I mean, he's, he embodies it very well. And, you, you know, you talk to people who may not even be, like, fans of Alex Jones, uh, but they are a similar sentiment when it comes to their relationship to, to the system. Where their, the extent of their dissent is always in the trappings of American mythology, which is, you know, relies on ignorance. I mean, it's, I mean, it's pretty, as far as peoples go, they're, Americans are very confused people to the extent that there are people at all. And we're coming up against that. And it's, you know, when I hear, we talk about like, it's kind of a, a state of the movement, so to speak. I mean, you say what movement? Well, yeah, exactly. But it. People talk about like one discussion you'll see is uh, one that really you know it's, I, it's like the old uh, the quote it's when I hear culture I reach for my Browning it's when I hear metapolitics reach for my Browning because it's like that's a naive place that people seem to want to put their hopes in that they, they like this the, it's the culture war right they're battling over over what what are the myths that people are going to accept. And their ideas and uh, it's you're not you're not there's a club and we're not in it right 
and no matter what you're, you're swimming upstream. I mean, you can't, you can't fight it on, you can't fight them on their terms. And I don't know what it's going to take to rest these illusions from the American people. I think that ultimately it's what it's going to take is a return to, to barbarism, which is if I was going to look in American history for a myth that I think is useful, I think it's that. I think that the, uh, the ugly American, you know, the white savage, the white Indian is I think really the best we have where ultimately I think Americans should probably be doubling down on their anti-intellectualism. The irony is that there was actually a return to uh, savagery and barbarism in Greece uh, multiple times. The, the most uh, stark period was uh, is actually often called the Greek Dark Ages, um, and it's a, a very murky time after the Bronze Age collapse and the uh, the, the collapse of uh, the Mycenaean Greeks. Uh, who are uh, who were the Greeks that uh, fought in what was likely the real Trojan War uh, against probably the Hittite Empire, and this was a time in which uh, the Greek world was widely depopulated. Uh, the the main the Greek mainland uh, uh, became almost barren, and uh, Greek civilization uh, took a a huge turn for the worse for hundreds of years the production of art and and philosophy um, and statecraft and technology um, nearly ceased uh, the greeks became a very wild people they were still greeks and there were some changes but they were different and the the greek golden age that we think of comes after this period uh, and it is the, I think, direct consequence of a, of a descent and then ascension from, you know, one golden age to a period of uh, misery only kept alive by the myths of old. This is how the Homeric epics are sort of formulated. Uh, the myths of the war, the myths of the Bronze Age, the myths of, of, uh, of a of a golden era with the Mycenae and the uh, the conquest of of the Aegean and all this sort of thing, and uh, and it motivated people for over a thousand years, well into Plato's time. This was this is an immense part, uh, and well after Plato, this is still a motivation for Greeks. Uh, even you know once they reached their I think their their second major decline, their decline under the Romans. Um, this was still an animating part of the Greek character, was the, these myths and also this time in barbarism, this time in, uh, in uh, sort of in disrepute. They had lost much of their, their respect in the world. I think it, these are familiar forms in America. I mean, you have a myth of a golden age that has a very short time frame, like the 1950s was like... You know, some kind of some kind of perfect golden age. That we could we could only go back there, and then things would be all right. Or maybe some people have a little bit longer memory. Maybe some people are uh, the myth of the golden south, or something like this. And I mean, if they if they were to be animating in a 
in a real political way, then it would be fine, but they're not. I mean, so if we don't have, if we don't have anything to go off of, we can only go forward, right? We don't, we just, what we want to see, or at least what I think needs to happen is we just need to be severed from all of it. I mean, if America was the bastard creation of Europe, where it severed its its connection and its memory to to the past, well, we should be doing that again, which is, I guess, a very American thing in a certain sense. We should just we should just cut the cord, and then we'll be free of it, and we'll be free of the strings that they have to pull on us. At least that's that's my conclusion when it comes to America. What do you think, Adam? It's interesting you direct that to me. Um, yeah, well, I guess when we first met, we were having similar discussions about uh, should we patch and repair versus burn down. Uh, and my question to the latter was always, well, I am not against anything, but I have to see the end game. And if there is a... Uh, a rebuilding because I don't want to live in ashes. Uh, what does that look like and how do we achieve that? And I still ask those questions. Um, I am less optimistic on the institutions as they stand than I was when we met. I am also less optimistic on sort of the 180 of that, which is maybe going Amish. Um, so, whatever the hell that's worth, uh, perhaps I'm sort of more moderate in between the two uh, or on a different dimension entirely. Short answer is I don't know what the hell we're supposed to do. Um, all I can tell you is um, I know that my life is directly correlated with how much effort and uh, work I put into it. And starting from that little circle, uh, I hope to grow and expand outward, but I can't go from the opposite direction, expecting the system to come and help me. Uh, I've never seen that happen ever in my life. Um, it's really just there to sort of pay lip service to that notion to maybe keep me uh, in line or loyal, but I've uh, pretty much uh, thrown away any hopes of that ever happening. And so uh, my ultimate uh, personality is... Um, you know, I start for myself and I, and I work outwards. Um, and if that's a barbarian mindset, perhaps that's, that's what I am. Um, I don't seek to live in a civilization, however, which is composed of roving bands of, uh, bandits or, or people on horseback with no, uh, coordination or organization whatsoever, because I think those people are ripe for conquest. That's exactly what happened to the American Indian. So if we do that, we're, we're screwed too. So, you know, you do need to have organization and, and nationhood at, at a certain level, but the current nation we find ourselves in is, is, a, is a complete train wreck. And so I don't really want to have much more to do with it. And so if we have to go through a period of, of breaking it apart, that's fine. But I think the goal eventually is to rebuild into something that more resembles uh, a nation state. And maybe, uh, you know, that doesn't work either because of globalism or technocratic elites basically just crushing everything uh, for their own benefit. I don't really know what the hell the answer is, but I, 
I think you got to start small uh, and then you, you go from there. I think that at this point, most philosophy should definitely be conducted with a hammer. I mean, the only service that I think we can do in the extent that we can perform a service at all is to help destroy things. You know, because I one one positive myth I, I will put forward is I do believe in the myth of the blood. I believe that from good blood, it can always be reborn again. There's always a possible future as long as the blood is maintained. And that to me is the, the only priority. I mean, that's that's where I think we're at. And if we can destroy the things that are holding us back, then that's the best thing that we can do. I was wondering what you guys thought of uh, the actual breakdown of the Justice Society, according to Plato. Uh, the auxiliaries, the guardians, and the producers. Um, to my mind, this is a very interesting, um, maybe not coincidence, but uh, an inheritor of a, uh, of a of a broader cultural phenomena. Uh, there was a there was a sort of mythologist and anthropologist named uh, Georges Dumuzel. Dumuzel, uh, I can't uh, I can't remember how to pronounce his name, but uh, he was particularly interested in Indo-European uh, and Proto-Indo-European mythology, anthropology, culture. And he had this postulation on trifunctionalism. Uh, and this was his primary contribution to the studies. So, you know, people like J.P. Mallory, who's another figure in this world, who's, uh, who's I think, brought that up. And uh, it shows up again and again in the literature, uh, the idea that a particular arrangement of three societal functions is, is the heart of the Indo-European life. Uh, and this, these are three classes generally, and had a kind of strict social hierarchy. Uh, the first function was, uh, you know, of sovereignty. So that was normally rulers, priests, um, maybe the magical, uh, or maybe um, more of the legal and formalistic. The second one was always going to be. Uh, uh, the warriors, and this normally manifested almost strictly in just those who make war, or those who are involved in the making of war in some way. And, uh, and one of the beliefs is that strength is more necessarily the primary virtue of this warrior class, rather than the potential intellect. The intellect is a far greater virtue to the rulers. Uh, and the third, you know, societal kind of functionary were uh, the generators or the producers. And this was pretty much everyone else, the farmers, the laborers, and so forth. Anyone who does any kind of physical activity. And they can range anywhere from wealthy to extremely poor, owning very little to owning quite a lot. There's a much wider range of distribution amongst these kinds of people. Um, 
So it's interesting that Plato sort of divines his just society into what ends up being this sort of uh, almost platonic form that it's descended from in the uh, the old culture of uh, of the steppe. Uh, I mean, I think Dumzil uh, he he particularly noticed it a lot in, in not only Norse mythology but uh, uh, Norse societies, and it was a it was a large part of the Norse mythology. Do you guys do you guys think that both this you, is you you see it pop up? I mean, this is like you see it in Hesiod. You see it the, the tripartite or the quad quadripartite. I don't know how you say that. Uh, division and then you have you know uh, the successive degeneration of the ages or whatever the golden age on down the golden age being the one that is accorded to the the class that it, uh, would be the high class the priest class and followed by the warrior class and the merchant class and then the slave class i think it's a it's a good way to conceptualize and it, i think it rings true to some kind of racial memory i think that that's that's probably true i don't think that anyone's ever going to be able to reinvent the wheel here i think that we should be looking further back and we should be looking uh, to the things that express our nature and if you find things that look familiar in ancient history and they resonate i think that's a good thing i think that there's a connection to be established there but a lot of it does get kind of, uh, I guess, mystical. You know, if you read like Evola or something like that. A little bit uh, uh, mystical, yes. Anyways, in, in lieu of a conclusion, I, we, uh, I just wanted to have kind of an informal chat here. And uh, much of much of Plato actually leaves you with very little conclusion as to what actually to think. So maybe we can, uh, in the spirit of that, probably end it with very little conclusion. But we're we're still going to be around. Uh, we're going to make content. And I guess what I wanted to, the uh, main question I wanted to ask around is, why post? Why make content? I mean, I, what, are you, what are your guys' motivations to participate in making any kind of content to begin with? to try to answer questions that have been answered extremely unsatisfactorily by the system is basically why I started doing this to begin with. Ah, uh, so you're a question asker. I'm hopefully an answerer of questions as well, but uh, given our uh, our five years of no leadership in the country, I don't know if we're successful quite yet. I think that asking the right questions is really one of the only skills that matters in life. I mean, and I do think that there's such a thing as, as dumb questions, but you know, you kind of got to get those out of the way so that you can ask the better questions. I think we've managed to answer exactly zero questions when it comes to things like what is justice? What is the good? what is truth because i don't think that these are questions we're capable of answering uh, but you know part of the reason i do this is just chat with you boys we happen to record this as a show but uh we'd be doing this anyways 
so uh, I don't want to leave people with too much pessimism. I do think that studying philosophy is, is good for you. I mean, if you find value in it, you should do it. It's good to, you know, try to exercise your brain muscles like anything else. And just, you know, pursue what is what is good for you in your life. And if that means, you know, pursuit of philosophy or pursuit of knowledge, then that's what you should do. But I don't know. What did you boys have to say about this in conclusion? Well, I think I gave my uh, my three cents. Hans, what do you got? Well, I think that the subject of Plato was uh, probably a very daunting task for, for us to tackle in, uh, in one evening. We'll probably do it again. As I said initially, you know, we want to branch out. We want to, we want to tackle some of these uh, more fundamental topics more often. Nick is maybe right. We didn't answer many questions. But that's not ultimately the point of philosophy in many ways. Uh, the point of philosophy is to ask questions. Uh, most philosophers who are worth anything would, I think, assert that on some level at least. That it, the whole point of this is to ask questions, not to answer them necessarily. But I do think that we provided a good portrait of Plato a good discussion of uh, one of his seminal works, uh, relation to our lives today, uh, who we are, you know, Americans living in uh, uh, the, the third chapter of the United States, effectively. Maybe the last chapter, it's hard to tell. As I, I said at the outset, you know, Plato uh, influences our lives in ways that are very difficult to understand. Uh, but far more often than you would probably realize, in the sense that many of our elites are very familiar with Plato. Many of our educated are familiar with Plato. Uh, many people, to one extent or another, uh, subconsciously, consciously, they uh, will imbue elements of Plato <clears throat> into their lives, into their worldview, into their actions, which is the most important piece. And I said that, you know, Plato, you might not be interested in Plato, but Plato is interested in you. Platonism is interested in you. And it's probably affecting you right now. I would say that uh, if you want to learn more, the best thing you can do is just read The Republic. Even if it's been many years since you've read it, uh, reread it or reread parts of it. Don't just, you know, grasp the... Uh, the spark notes version or the the analyses after the fact uh, really read it and get a general sense for it you don't have to be able to quote all of it or you know be be one of these people that can just randomly quote off pieces of it that's not what it's intended it's a it's a dialogue not a not a story with with epic quotations read it and try to understand the world that surrounded it, because I think you will be able to understand your world today if you then apply those same principles for understanding the ancient Greek world. Uh, 
uh, which is again what philosophy is ultimately about as well asking questions and through asking questions you learn how to think uh, which is i think what plato would want you to do plato would want you to learn how to think more than just learn his work you know there's plenty of books that you should read or you could read on the greeks the coming of the greeks is a, is a fantastic book any any book on the uh, origins of the bronze age or the late bronze age or the the, the initial era of, of classical greek antiquity uh, the peloponnesian war those are all great places to learn about one of the most important peoples that ever walked the earth and whom plato is descended from and I think it's important to learn about the Greeks and Plato because uh, a big part of, of the work is, is uh, the disillusion of states, how states fall apart, how peoples fall apart, how cities and souls fall apart. And the Greeks fell apart too. The, the Greeks of today are, they're Greek, they're different. But the Greeks that we knew of as the, the Greeks of classical antiquity have ceased to exist. And despite all of their contributions, their magnificent achievements, the heights they reached, uh, they too, you know, ceased to exist. And, and there's not much trace left of them other than the, the works that we still read today and some of their, their ruins that we occasionally look at. I think that that's worthwhile too, is to understand how people's fall and what to do about it and maybe how to prevent it from happening in the future one of the saddest things about the modern world is that people live in a tiny time slice which they carry forward with them nothing remains the centuries to them are completely dark just unillumined corridors from which they stagger into a single little sliver of light Every great civilization has a record of a period, of a golden age, when there was no war, no dispute, no lying. It's not by shunning darkness that you'll know light. No holy fields of wood alive, of stone alive And up in the rooms of your barren house You're reassembling language to keep realities out And I know you'll tell In this game of greeds In the logic of the spell My burning attachment to contingencies For who wills the ends May will the means Only fools and firebrands. Kali Yuga, Uberalis. <laughs> 
Sen maailman riekkalehti, joka ei enää koske. Joka ei enää koske.